We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. On the next Selected Shorts, we're celebrating the centennial of Kurt Vonnegut. It's all about the Slaughterhouse-Five author who somehow managed to make a bleak dystopia funny and a high school band teacher a hero. Helmholtz stepped to the podium and raised his baton. You are better than you think. Join Dylan and Becky Ann Baker, Jordan Klepper, and me, Meg Wallitzer, as we celebrate a master. Stay with us. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Novelist, short story writer, and occasional graduation speaker Kurt Vonnegut died in 2007, but he would have turned 100 this year. The sharp and wily cult figure, I guess he was really too big to be called a cult figure, but he seemed like one, occupies a singular place in the history of fiction— Vonnegut was a pacifist who came to fame in the 1960s and whose best-known work, Slaughterhouse-Five, was a reaction to his experiences during World War II. He was a playful satirist and a sci-fi writer who wriggled his way into the embrace of the mainstream. And he had an idiosyncratic authorial voice that was at once effortless and impossible to replicate. Maybe you're a fan and you encountered Cat's Cradle or Breakfast of Champions in high school. Maybe Vonnegut's playful darkness helped you navigate the world just when it started making less sense. Or maybe you've only heard Vonnegut's name and wondered what the hype is about. Whatever it is you know about the writer Time magazine famously called a moral mad scientist, we've got something for you. You might be surprised to find that some of Vonnegut's short stories reveal his softer side. His tales of small-town America are quieter and sweeter than his well-known classics about war and oppression— And in this hour, we'll hear these different sides of Vonnegut. One of our tales is a favorite that laughs in the face of a bleak, imagined future. The other one, a gentle, idealistic tale about trust and sacrifice. We dedicated an entire live show to the life and fiction of Vonnegut, and our host was the very funny daily show performer, Jordan Klepper. As a satirist himself, Klepper had a lot to say about Vonnegut and how Vonnegut's work influenced his young mind. Here he is from the stage at Symphony Space. The books of Kurt Vonnegut rearranged what I thought literature could do, what I thought comedy could be. A wise-ass who was direct, playful, and searing. In high school, doodles, body parts with a dash of plain-spoken, cynical wisdom was my love language. And if I'm being totally honest, I speak mostly in doodles and body parts even today. For the past decade, whenever I'm in a rut... I often go over and pick up Breakfast of Champions or Time Quake, and suddenly I'm lost in time within the stories. A trip I didn't expect to take, but eventually arrive rejuvenated a week later with a cosmic kick in the pants. Peculiar travel suggestions are dancing lessons from God, Vonnegut said. And I feel that way, just a simple chapter into his work. That was Jordan Klepper speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. In this salute to the work of Kurt Vonnegut, we wanted to feature at least one fan favorite. Harrison Bergeron is that favorite, one of Vonnegut's perfectly executed sci-fi dystopias. It plays on several of the writer's fears, in particular oligarchy, invasive technologies, and the anesthetizing power of television. And still, despite its subject matter, the story remains incredibly funny. The actor reading it is a Broadway veteran who has appeared in series including Girls and New Amsterdam, and films such as the recent indie drama Holler. Here's Becky Ann Baker performing Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron. The year was 2018 and everybody was finally equal. 
They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution. and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Now, some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Now, every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, not better than anybody else would have been anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, And their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. Now, George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two of the eight ballerinas. (laughs) Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what was the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. Well, I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up, uh, said George. Only if I was handicapper general, you know what I would do, said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday, just chimes, kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail, about Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just part of me.
You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. Two years in prison and $2,000 fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take a few out when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, said George, then other people get away with it, and pretty soon we'd be right back to the dark ages again with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall all apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, ladies and gentlemen, he finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. <laughs> That's all right, Hazel said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin, she must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicap bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said, and she began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen, upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever borne heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Now, ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. To offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was the shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. 
George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might, for many the time was his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, and huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicapped harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrapped iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness, and the bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back to their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps, too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false, but Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played, and he slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barrel 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and the empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicapped signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. You've been crying, he said to Hazel. Yup, she said. What about, he said. I forget, she said, something real sad on television. What was it, he said. 
It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell that one was a doozy. (laughs) Becky Ann Baker read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. We asked her about her love for this profound and playful author and about this particular story. I have to say that I started with Kurt Vonnegut young. I was reading him in high school and college, but it was interesting because not that long ago, I reread something and I realized that he had influenced the philosophy of my entire adult life. I love Harrison Bergeron so much. So there are just some fascinating things that are similar to the world we're living in right now, uh, having to do with masks and um, handicaps and equality. It's a brilliant, brilliant story. That was Becky Ann Baker speaking backstage at Symphony Space. The writers you read when you're coming of age will always remind you of becoming who you are, separate from your parents or your friends. They'll remind you of being aware of having private, uncensored thoughts which, of course, are dangerous possessions in Harrison Bergeron. It's a story that shocked and startled me when I read it in junior high, and which has shocked and startled me all over again now. When we return, a pair of boots, a bottle of acid, and the sacred trumpet of John Philip Sousa. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Years ago, I was spending the summer with my family in a town in Massachusetts. And there on the porch of a building, unmistakably himself, sat Kurt Vonnegut. He was really easy to spot with that mustache and wild curly hair. He looked, a friend of mine said, like a Victorian magician. My family and I were all big fans, but we just sort of let him be and kept going, as if we'd stumbled upon wildlife. And Kurt Vonnegut definitely had a wild inner life. I'm so glad he let readers in on it. Kurt Vonnegut played clarinet in his own high school jazz band in Indianapolis, and it clearly occupied a little corner of his mind ever after. The Kid Nobody Could Handle is one of several stories Vonnegut wrote featuring George Helmholtz, a dedicated teacher who believes in the power of band and in his students. Given Vonnegut's predilection for fiction that can feel a little bit like an episode of Black Mirror, it's worth remembering this tender and nurturing side, too. The story is read by Dylan Baker, a Tony nominee whose screen credits include Happiness and recent series including Homeland and Hunters. Also, fun fact, he's married to the reader of our first story, Becky Ann Baker. Stick around after the story to hear Baker explain how he decided on the voices he chose for the various characters. Here's Dylan Baker performing The Kid Nobody Could Handle by Kurt Vonnegut. It was 7.30 in the morning. Waddling, clanking, muddy machines were tearing a hill to pieces behind a restaurant, and trucks were hauling the pieces away. Inside the restaurant, dishes rattled on their shelves, tables quaked, and a very kind man with a head full of music looked down at the jiggling yolks of his breakfast eggs. His wife was visiting relatives out of town. He was on his own. 
The man was George M. Helmholtz, a man of 40, head of the music department of Lincoln High School and director of the band. Life had treated him well. Each year, he dreamed the same big dream. He dreamed of leading as fine a band as there was on the face of the earth. And each year, the dream came true. It came true because Helmholtz was sure that a man couldn't have a better dream than his. Faced by this unnerving sureness, Kiwanians, Rotarians, and Lions paid for band uniforms that cost twice as much as their best suits. School administrators helped Helmholtz raid the budget for expensive props, and youngsters played their hearts out for him. When youngsters had no talent, Helmholtz made them play on guts alone. Everything was good about Helmholtz's life, save his finances. He was so dazzled by his big dream that he was a child in the marketplace. Ten years before, he had sold the hill behind the restaurant to Bert Quinn, the restaurant owner, for $1,000. It was now apparent, even to Helmholtz, that he had been had. Quinn sat down in the booth with the bandmaster. He was a bachelor, a small, dark, humorless man. He wasn't a well man. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't stop working. He couldn't smile warmly. He had only two moods, one suspicious and self-pitying, the other arrogant and boastful. The first mood applied when he was losing money. The second mood applied when he was making it. Quinn was in the arrogant and boastful mood when he sat down with Helmholtz. He sucked whistlingly on a toothpick and talked of vision, his own. I wonder how many eyes saw the hill before I did, said Quinn. Thousands and thousands, I bet, and not one saw what I saw. How many eyes? Mine, at least, said Helmholtz. All the hill had meant to him was a panting climb, free blackberries, taxes, and a place for band picnics. You inherit the hill from your old man, and it's nothing but a pain in the neck to you, said Quinn. So you figure you'll stick me with it. I didn't figure to stick you, Helmholtz protested. The good Lord knows the price was more than fair. You say that now, said Quinn gleefully. Sure, Helmholtz, you say that now. Now you see the shopping districts got to grow. Now you see what I saw. Yes, said Helmholtz. Too late, too late. He looked around for some diversion and saw a 15-year-old boy coming toward him, mopping the aisle between booths. The boy was small, but with tough, stringy muscles standing out on his neck and forearms. Childhood lingered in his features, but when he paused to rest, his fingers went hopefully to the silky beginnings of sideburns and a mustache. He mopped like a robot, jerkily, brainlessly, but took pains not to splash suds over the toes of his black boots. So what do I do when I get the hill, said Quinn. I tear it down, and it's like somebody pulled down a dam. All of a sudden, everybody wants to build a store where the hill was, uh, said Helmholtz. He smiled genially at the boy, The boy looked through him without a twitch of recognition. We all got something, said Quinn. You got music. I got vision. And he smiled, for it was perfectly clear to both where the money lay. Think big, said Quinn. Dream big. That's what vision is. Keep your eyes wider open than anybody else's. 
That boy, said Helmholtz, I've seen him around school, but I never knew his name. Quinn laughed cheerlessly. Billy the Kid? The Stormtrooper? Rudolph Valentina? Flash Gordon? He called the boy. Hey, Jim, come here a minute. Hemholtz was appalled to see that the boy's eyes were as expressionless as oysters. This is my brother-in-law's kid by another marriage before he married my sister, said Quinn. His name's Jim Donini, and he's from the south side of Chicago, and he's very tough. Jim Donini's hands tightened on the mop handle. How do you do, said Helmholtz. Hi, said Jim emptily. He's living with me now, said Quinn. He's my baby now. Uh, you want a lift to school, Jim? Yeah, he wants a lift to school, said Quinn. See what you make of him. He won't talk to me. He turned to Jim. Go on, kid, wash up and shave. Robot-like Jim marched away. Where are his parents? His mother's dead. His old man married my sister, walked out on her, and stuck her with him. Then the court didn't like the way she was raising him and put him in foster homes for a while. Then they decided to get him clear out of Chicago, so they stuck him with me. He shook his head. Life's a funny thing, Helmholtz. Not very funny sometimes, said Helmholtz. He pushed his eggs away. Like some whole new race of people coming up, said Quinn wonderingly. Nothing like the kids we got around here. Those boots, that black jacket, and he won't talk. He won't run around with the other kids, won't study. I don't think he can even read and write very good. Does he like music at all or drawing? Or animals, said Helmholtz. Does he collect anything? You know what he likes, said Quinn. He likes to polish those boots. Get off by himself and polish those boots. And when he's really in heaven is when he can get off by himself, spread comic books all around him on the floor, polish his boots, and watch television. He smiled ruefully. Yeah, he had a collection too, and I took it away from him and threw it in the river. Threw it in the river, said Helmholtz. Yeah, said Quinn. Eight knives, some with blades as long as your hand. Helmholtz paled. Oh, a prickling sensation spread over the back of his neck. This is a new problem at Lincoln High. I hardly know what to think about it. He swept spilled salt together in a neat little pile, just as he would have liked to sweep together his scattered thoughts. It's a, a kind of sickness, isn't it? That's the way to look at it. Sick, said Quinn. He slapped the table. You can say that again. He tapped his chest. And Dr. Quinn is just the man to give him what's good for what ails him. What's that? said Helmholtz. No more talk about the poor little sick boy, said Quinn grimly. That's all he's heard from the social workers and the juvenile court and God knows who all. From now on... He's the no-good bum of a man. I'll ride his tail till he straightens up and flies right, or winds up in the can for life, one way or the other. I see, said Helmholtz. Like listening to music, said Helmholtz to Jim brightly as they rode to school in Helmholtz's car. Jim said nothing. He was stroking his mustache and sideburns, which he had not shaved off. 
ever drum with the fingers or keep time with your feet? said Helmholtz. He had noticed that Jim's boots were decorated with chains that had no function but to jingle as he walked. Jim sighed with ennui. Or whistle, said Hemholtz. If you do any of those things, it's just like picking up the keys to a whole new world, a world as beautiful as any world can be. Jim gave a soft Bronx cheer. There, said Helmholtz, you've illustrated the basic principle of the family of brass wind instruments. The glorious voice of every one of them starts with a buzz on the lips. The seat springs of Helmholtz's old car creaked under Jim as Jim shifted his weight. Helmholtz took this as a sign of interest and he turned to smile in comradely fashion. But Jim had shifted his weight in order to get a cigarette from inside his tight leather jacket. Helmholtz was too upset to comment at once. It was only at the end of the ride as he turned into the teacher's parking lot that he thought of something to say. Sometimes, said Helmholtz, I get so lonely and disgusted, I don't see how I can stand it. I feel like doing all kinds of crazy things, just for the heck of it, things that might even be bad for me. Jim blew a smoke ring expertly. And then, said Helmholtz, he snapped his fingers and honked his horn. And then, Jim, I remember I've got at least one tiny corner of the universe I can make just the way I want it. I can go to it and gloat over it until I'm brand new and happy again. Aren't you the lucky one, said Jim. He yawned. <laughs> I am, for a fact, said Helmholtz. My corner of the universe happens to be the air around my band. I can fill it with music. Mr. Beeler in zoology has his butterflies. Mr. Trotman in physics has his pendulum and tuning forks. Making sure everybody has a corner like that is about the biggest job we teachers have. I... The car door opened and slammed and Jim was gone. Helmholtz stamped out Jim's cigarette and buried it under the gravel of the parking lot. Helmholtz's first class of the morning was C-band, where beginners thumped and wheezed and tooted as best they could and looked down the long, long, long road through B-band to A-band. The Lincoln High School 10-square band, the finest band in the world. Helmholtz stepped to the podium and raised his baton. You are better than you think, he said. A one, a two, a three. Down came the baton. C-band set out in its quest for beauty. Set out like a rusty switch engine with valves stuck. Pipes clogged, unions leaking, bearings dry. Helmholtz was still smiling at the end of the hour because he had heard in his mind the music as it was going to be someday. His throat was raw, for he had been singing with the band the whole hour. He stepped into the hall for a drink from the fountain. As he drank, he heard the jingling of chains... He looked up at Jim Donini. Rivers of students flowed between classrooms, pausing in friendly eddies, flowing on again. Jim was alone. When he paused, it wasn't to greet anyone, but to polish the toes of his boots on his trouser legs. He had the air of a spy in a melodrama, missing nothing, liking nothing, looking forward to the great day when everything would be turned upside down. Hello, Jim, said Helmholtz. Say, I was just thinking about you. 
We've got a lot of clubs and teams that meet after school, and that's a good way to get to know a lot of people. Jim measured Helmholtz carefully with his eyes. Maybe I don't want to know a lot of people, he said. Ever think of that? He set his feet down hard to make his chains jingle as he walked away. When Helmholtz returned to the podium for a rehearsal of B-Band, there was a note waiting for him calling him to a special faculty meeting. The meeting was about vandalism. Someone had broken into the school and wrecked the office of Mr. Crane, head of the English department. The poor man's treasures, books, diplomas, snapshots of England, the beginnings of 11 novels had been ripped and crumpled, mixed, dumped and trampled and drenched with ink. Helmholtz was sickened. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't bring himself to think about it. It didn't become real to him until late that night in a dream. In a dream, Helmholtz saw a boy with barracuda teeth, with claws like bailing hooks, the monster climbed into a window of the high school and dropped to the floor of the band rehearsal room. The monster clawed to shreds the heads of the biggest drum in the state. Helmholtz woke up howling. There was nothing to do but dress and go to the school. At two in the morning... Helmholtz caressed the drumheads in the band rehearsal room with the night watchman looking on. He rolled the drum back and forth on its cart and turned the light inside on and off. On and off. The drum was unharmed. The night watchman left to make his rounds. The band's treasure house was safe. With the contentment of a miser counting his money, Helmholtz fondled the rest of the instruments one by one. And then he began to polish the sousaphones. As he polished, he could hear the great horns roaring, could see them flashing in the sunlight with the stars and stripes and the banner of Lincoln High going before. Yump, yump, diddle-diddle-dee, yump, yump, diddle-diddle-dee sang Helmholtz happily. Ya, 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 rum-pum-ba-rum-pum, boom! As he paused to choose the next number for his imaginary band to play, he heard a furtive noise in the chemistry laboratory next door. Helmholtz sneaked into the hall, jerked open the laboratory door, and flashed on the lights. Jim Donini had a bottle of acid in either hand. He was splashing acid over the periodic table of the elements, over the blackboards covered with formulas, over the bust of Lavoisier. <laughs> the scene was the most repulsive thing Helmholtz could have looked upon. Jim smiled with thin bravado. Get out, said Helmholtz. What are you going to do, said Jim. Clean up? Save what I can, said Helmholtz dazedly. He picked up a wad of cotton waste and began wiping up the acid. Y you gonna call the cops, said Jim. I, I, I don't know, said Helmholtz. No thoughts come. If I'd caught you hurting the bass drum, I think I would have killed you with a single blow. But I wouldn't have had any intelligent thoughts about what you thought you were doing. It's about time this place got set on its ear, said Jim. Is it? said Helmholtz. That must be so, if one of our students wants to murder it. What good is it? said Jim. Not much good, I guess, said Helmholtz. It's just the best thing human beings ever managed to do. He was helpless, talking to himself. He had a bag of tricks for making boys behave like men, tricks that played on boyish fears and dreams and love, but here was a boy without fears. 
without dreams, without love. If you smashed up all the schools, said Helmholtz, we wouldn't have any hope left. What hope, said Jim. The hope one has that everybody will be glad he's alive, said Helmholtz. Even you. That's a laugh, said Jim. All I ever got out of this dump was a hard time. So what are you going to do? I have to do something, don't I, said Helmholtz. I don't care what you do, said Jim. I know, said Helmholtz. I know. He marched Jim into the tiny office of his off the band rehearsal room. He dialed the telephone number of the principal's home. Numbly, he waited for the bell to get the old man from his bed. Jim dusted his boots with a rag. Helmholtz suddenly dropped the telephone into its cradle before the principal could answer. Isn't there anything you care about but ripping Hacking, bending, rending, smashing, bashing, he cried. Anything? Anything but those boots? Go on. Call up whoever you're going to call, said Jim. Helmholtz opened a locker and took a trumpet from it. He thrust the trumpet into Jim's arms. There, he said, puffing with emotion. There's my treasure. It's the dearest thing I own. I give it to you to smash. I won't move a muscle to stop you. You can have the added pleasure of watching my heart break while you do it. Jim looked at him oddly. He laid down the trumpet. Go on, said Helmholtz. If the world has treated you so badly, it deserves to have the trumpet smashed. Aye, said Jim. Helmholtz grabbed Jim's belt, put a foot behind him, and dumped him on the floor. Helmholtz pulled Jim's boots off and threw them into a corner. There, said Helmholtz savagely. He jerked the boy to his feet again and thrust the trumpet into his arms once more. Jim Donini was barefoot now. He had lost his socks with his boots. The boy looked down. Feet that had once seemed big black clubs were narrow as chicken wings now, bony and blue and not quite clean. The boy shivered, then quaked. Each quake seemed to shake something loose inside until at last there was no boy left, no boy at all. Jim's head lolled as though he waited only for death. Helmholtz was overwhelmed by remorse. He threw his arms around the boy. Jim, Jim, listen to me, boy. Jim stopped quaking. You know what you've got there? The trumpet, said Helmholtz. You, you, you know what's special about it? Jim only sighed. It belonged to John Philip Sousa, said Helmholtz. He rocked and shook Jim gently, trying to bring him back to life. I'll trade it to you, Jim, for your boots. It's yours, Jim. John Philip Sousa's trumpet is yours. It's worth hundreds of dollars, Jim, thousands. Jim laid his head on Helmholtz's breast. It's better than boots, Jim said Helmholtz. You can learn to play it. You're somebody, Jim. You're the boy with John Philip Sousa's trumpet. Helmholtz released Jim slowly. Sure, the boy would topple. Jim didn't fall. He stood alone. The trumpet was still in his arms. I'll take you home, Jim, said Helmholtz. Be a good boy, and I won't say a word about tonight. Polish your trumpet and learn to be a good boy. Can I have my boots? said Jim dully. No, said Helmholtz. I don't think they're good for you. 
He drove Jim home. He opened the car windows, and the air seemed to refresh the boy. He led him out at Quinn's restaurant. The soft pats of Jim's bare feet on the sidewalk echoed down the empty street. He climbed through a window into his bedroom behind the kitchen, and all was still. The next morning, the waddling, clanking, muddy machines were making the vision of Bert Quinn come true. They were smoothing off the place where the hill had been behind the restaurant. They were making it as level as a billiard table. Helmholtz sat in a booth again. Quinn joined him again. Jim mopped again. Jim kept his eyes down, refusing to notice Helmholtz. And he didn't seem to care when a surf of suds broke over the toes of his small and narrow brown Oxfords. Eating out two mornings in a row, said Quinn. Something wrong at home? My wife's still out of town, said Helmholtz. While the cat's away, said Quinn. He winked. When the cat's away, said Helmholtz, the mouse gets lonesome. (laughs) Quinn leaned forward. Is that what got you out of bed in the middle of the night, Helmholtz? Loneliness? He jerked his head at Jim. Kid, go get Mr. Helmholtz his horn. Jim raised his head, and Helmholtz saw that his eyes were oyster-like again. He marched away to get the trumpet. Quinn now showed that he was excited and angry. You take away his boots and give him a horn, and I'm not supposed to get curious? He said, I'm not supposed to start asking questions. I'm not supposed to find out you caught him taking the school apart. (laughs) You'd make a lousy crook, Helmholtz. You'd leave your baton, sheet music, and your driver's license at the scene of the crime. I don't think about hiding clues, said Helmholtz. I just do what I do. I was going to tell you. Quinn's feet danced and his shoes squeaked like mice. Yes, he said. Well, I've got some news for you, too. What is that, said Helmholtz uneasily. It's all over with Jim and me, said Quinn. Last night was the payoff. I'm sending him back where he came from. To another string of foster homes, said Helmholtz weakly. Whatever the experts figure out to do with a kid like that. Quinn sat back, exhaled noisily, and went limp with relief. You can't, said Helmholtz. I can, said Quinn. That will be the end of him, said Helmholtz. He can't stand to be thrown away like that one more time. He can't feel anything, said Quinn. I can't help him. I can't hurt him. Nobody can. There isn't a nerve in him. A bundle of scar tissue, said Helmholtz. The bundle of scar tissue returned with the trumpet. Impassively, he laid it on the table in front of Helmholtz. Helmholtz forced a smile. It's yours, Jim. I gave it to you. Take it while you got the chance, Helmholtz said Quinn. He doesn't want it. All he'll do is swap it for a knife or a pack of cigarettes. He, he doesn't know what it is yet, said Helmholtz. It takes a while to find out. Is it any good, said Quinn. Any, any, any good, said Helmholtz, not believing his ears. Any good. He didn't see how anyone could look at the instrument, and not be warmed and dazzled by any good, he murmured. It belonged to John Philip Sousa. Quinn blinked stupidly. Oh? (laughs) Helmholtz's hands fluttered on the tabletop like the wings of a dying bird. Who was John Philip Sousa? He piped. No more words came. The subject was too big for a tired man to cover. The dying bird expired and lay still. After a long silence, Helmholtz picked up the trumpet. 
He kissed the cold mouthpiece and pumped the valves in a dream of a brilliant cadenza. Over the bell of the instrument, Helmholtz saw Jim Donini's face, seemingly floating in space all but deaf and blind. Now Helmholtz saw the futility of men and their treasures. He had thought that his greatest treasure, the trumpet, could buy a soul for Jim. The trumpet was worthless. Deliberately, Helmholtz hammered the trumpet against the table edge. He bent it around a coat tree. He handed the wreck to Quinn. You busted it, said Quinn, amazed. Why'd you do that? What's that prove? I, I don't know, said Helmholtz. A terrible blasphemy rumbled deep in him, like the warning of a volcano. And then, irresistibly, out it came. Life is no damn good, said Helmholtz, his face twisted as he fought back tears and shame. Helmholtz, the mountain that walked like a man, was falling apart. Jim Donini's eyes filled with pity and alarm. They came alive. They became human. Helmholtz had got a message through. Quinn looked at Jim, and something like hope flickered for the first time in his bitterly lonely old face. Two weeks later, a new semester began at Lincoln High in the band rehearsal room. The members of C Band were waiting for their leader, were waiting for their destinies as musicians to unfold. Helmholtz stepped onto the podium and rattled his baton against his music stand. The voices of spring, he said. Everybody hear that? The voices of spring? There were rustling sounds as the musicians put their music on the stands. In the pregnant silence that followed their readiness, Helmholtz glanced at Jim Donini, who sat on the last seat of the worst trumpet section of the worst band in school. His trumpet, John Philip Sousa's trumpet, George M. Helmholtz's trumpet had been repaired. Think of it this way, said Helmholtz. Our aim is to make the world more beautiful than it was when we came into it. It can be done. You can do it. A small cry of despair came from Jim Donini. It was meant to be private but it pierced every ear with its poignancy. How, said Jim. Love yourself, said Helmholtz, and make your instruments sing about it. A one, a two, a three, down came his baton. That was Dylan Baker reading Kurt Vonnegut's The Kid Nobody Could Handle. Before the live performance, Dylan Baker shared how he found the voices that brought The Kid Nobody Could Handle to life. Spoiler alert, he stole the South Chicago accent from actor Dennis Farina. I immediately looked at that south side of Chicago for the young boy and said, is that moron number one? Let me talk to moron number two from uh, Midnight uh, Run. And then with the guy, I decided, for some reason, have gotten Jimmy Cagney in my mind and his sort of elevated early mid-century, I'll tell you what you should do. You should have vision, and I have vision. And for Hemholtz, well, he's stuck with my voice. He's the narrator, and he is not trying to put on anything. He's just a normal guy in my book. So I figure I'm a normal guy, so I stayed with that. <laughs> 
That was Dylan Baker backstage at Symphony Space. We hope the two stories we've heard this hour, one dark and crafty, one light and sweet, have helped to illuminate two sides of this masterful author. He's not around anymore, of course, so we can't ask him what he thinks about our iPhones, our melting glaciers, our current political landscape, and so much else. But the loose-limbed imagination and originality in his work still speak to us. And I feel that if we try really hard, we can almost imagine his answer to whatever we might ask him. I think I can hear it, part of it at least. It sounds a lot like, so it goes, so it goes. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers, circle, and members who make our programs possible with our annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Symphony Space.